Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Dominic Fifield of The Athletic and by Daniel Storey, the author and columnist. So, Jose Mourinho has apparently chosen his next club. It's not Leon, by the way, though they asked. He's learning German, so will he be born into Bayern on a sedan chair? Will he grace Goodison or ride to the rescue at Spurs? Wherever he ends up, he at least has brightened up the international break. Premier League the next stop? I think he'd love that, wouldn't he? I mean, that must be his, uh, his ultimate game. But there's obviously no opportunity there at the moment. Everton, you look at and think that possibly with the uh, Portuguese connections, maybe they could go down that route in future. But would he go to Goodison Park? I imagine that's the type of move that he would make once they're ensconced in their new stadium, not, not at the moment. We've just sort of had this drip feed of... PR from Mourinho's people all summer. It was always, I'm ready to come back, I'll be back next month, I'll be back the following month. Uh, ooh, still quiet. I better go on to Sky and do some punditry. Better go and do an advert for a betting company. It's <laughs> just, he's omnipresent as ever. And he's great entertainment to listen to, but look, he must be desperate to get back in. It's just not in his nature to be out of the game. Yeah. Ego, cash, Real Madrid. <laughs> Yeah, I think Real Madrid and Tottenham are the two probably closest fits. Madrid for the ego, Tottenham for the uh, probably the actual environment and the job to state his kind of professional desires. And, and yeah, and Real Madrid for the ego and the, the going back and writing what he perceives to be Zidane's wrongs. Um, it will irk him that Zidane has won Champions Leagues there. And we know that. And yeah, they are the two most natural fits, but it, it does also... It's a difficult one with Mourinho because he's clearly desperate to get back in the game, but actually his PR is never better than when he's doing it himself and kind of selling himself for a job rather than actually doing it. <laughs> we saw how badly it went at Manchester United eventually. So he is slightly damaged goods. And to be honest, if he gets that Real Madrid job, that's a good get for him, given his recent record. To be able to go back to one of the biggest clubs in the world, having seen it go so sour at Manchester United, I think, yeah, he should jump at that. Mm. Has he been tainted by what went on United, Dom, or... Has he been almost excused by the subsequent acceleration of the decline? I think there's a danger that we forget the, the level of toxicity that existed at United during the, the last few months of his, his tenure there. 
um, because we're obsessed with the way it appears to be unravelling at the moment uh, under Solskjaer and more pertinently under Ed Woodward. But, look, it was, it was clearly a, a club that was playing catch. All the issues that, that undermined Mourinho's tenure are still there. There doesn't seem to be any policy or strategy. I mean, it's, I suppose you could argue that the purchase of people like James and Wan-Bissaka in the summer, at least they're looking you know, longer, longer term with those signings. But, but I, the sort of haphazard nature of the, of the policy and the, and the philosophy at the stru- of, the, of the club is still as it was under, under Mourinho. So I suppose you could excuse him on that basis, but it was pretty poisonous in those last few months. And as it, as it was, to be honest, when things went horrifically wrong in his second spell at Chelsea back in 2015. So it all begs the question, Dan, what happens if as many people expect, Liverpool walk into Old Trafford, humiliate Man United and leave giggling. At some point, they're going to have to curb the PR of this is a huge rebuild and we're moving in the right direction when results are clearly moving in the wrong direction. It's impossible to pull the wool over fans' eyes for so long. And it should be said that the one thing they haven't tried, and I've said it on here before, the one thing they haven't tried is a forward-thinking, modern, very recently successful coach. Um, and one who is prepared not to alienate key players and, uh, you know, as, a, as a means of self-preservation, as, as Mourinho was. Um, and there are now pretty obvious names that could fit in there. And, and Such as? Well, Pochettino is, I think, is the obvious option. I think if they were likely to get him, I think they would probably rather now wait until the end of the season, maybe see that Solskjaer through until the summer. But if results get much worse, much more quickly, or the Tottenham, you know, that Tottenham project unravels as quickly as that is as well, then they've got a decision to make because they'd be foolish to miss, miss out on that for some sort of stubborn reliance on this Solskjaer is the man when the reality is I don't think there's another Premier League club whose supporters would, would welcome the appointment of Solskjaer at the moment. So if you're putting all your eggs in that basket purely based on the fact of his history at the club, it has to start going well pretty soon because there's not a lot else to found it on. Mm, because, as you mentioned, the atmosphere is becoming increasingly toxic. You know, there's talk of a protest march against the Glazers on Sunday. Uh, you know, there's increasing scrutiny of, of Woodward. Are we, by looking at the manager focusing on the wrong target? Well, possibly. Um, and I, but that might, be the, that might be why Solskjaer, they, they stick with him. I mean, it may be that Woodward looks at it and thinks, God, if I get rid of another manager, then the, the scrutiny will be even more on me uh, and the decisions I've been making. So let's stick, let's stick with the man currently in, in place. But I'll go back to the, all, all those problems still exist. All the problems post-Fergie and the sort of... It's rather sort of mishmash of whether it be transfer policy or the sort of obsession with social media posts, even like that. You get it's just the whole thing is is the imbalance. It's an imbalanced setup. It, um, there's no there's no real focus to any of it, and they just need somebody to to go in there. And Pochettino would be a great uh, uh, that type of man. I'm not saying that he should leave Tottenham Hotspur, but at least when he came into Spurs, he had a vision. He had a set way of doing things that he wanted to pursue. And and every everything else fell into into line. Mm. Now there are you know potentially cracks appearing with Daniel Levy. Potentially, I mean, we've seen the tension there this season. So it's not like it's not the perfect scenario. But even so, Pochettino seems a better fit for United at the moment than Solskjaer does. You can mm. you can think both that the Glazers and Woodward are at fault to 
a huge extent and also think that Ole Solskjaer is not the right man yeah. to lead Manchester United forward. They're not... Just as you, as we said, just as you can think that Oli Solskjaer is not the right man for the job, and yet they were still right to sack Jose Mourinho. It, you don't have to sit with right. both feet in one of those camps. You can say, well, this is not right, but also this is not right either, and it's and it's only exacerbating that issue. Mm-hmm. Until they get both of them right, I don't think they'll be able to be title challengers again. But they can certainly be better than thirteenth in the Premier League. Yeah, but you know we're in the international break, which is a, vac- a news vacuum anyway. Um, so therefore, that encourages the hype, doesn't it? You know, you look at Manchester United now, and we can't move for pieces saying they're going to spend 130 million pounds on on Chilwell and Madison from Leicester. Well, if that's a strategy, just plundering Leicester, where are they in terms of recruitment? Because their recruitment has been a, been very, very poor, or very, very obvious. It has been. Uh, I, I think that they got better at it last summer. I think that the players that they brought in last summer were were more the type of players they need to be to be looking at for it with a long-term vision. I think James and Wan-Bissaka, um, Madison and Chilwell would probably fall into the same bracket, really. I mean, they, but they'd, they'd cost you know, substantially more. Um, why would Leicester City be willing to part with them either? Um, but they, they needed that for a long time, just to, to have a bit of a long-term vision. There's been all too much panic buying. I mean, it always goes, but let's go back to the Alexis Sanchez signing, which... which it was an absolute disaster and, and, a, and a drain on their, even Manchester United's finances, um, but, but represented this sort of short-termism. Uh, let's, just, let's just plug a hole with somebody who's actually passed his best. Um, it didn't work. Surprise, surprise. And they're lucky enough to, to have got him off the wage bill for the moment. Mm. Is there any way they can beat Liverpool? I think there's probably a, an argument to say it's the best and worst fixture they could have in that... What they're actually good at doing at the moment is defending, um, but Solskjaer's kind of commitment to this vague Manchester United way, we're going to play attacking, expansive football, hasn't worked because they don't create enough chances and the midfield's pretty stagnant. So maybe sitting back and soaking up pressure and, and hitting on the counter-attack is the, is the one way they can trouble Liverpool. But you look at it and, I mean, they're light years apart at the moment and they're going in different directions. And, and the reality is Liverpool have beaten far better and far more capable teams than and Manchester United already this season. So logic dictates that, yeah, an early goal for Liverpool and the mood drops even further and, you know, we get that sort of David Moyes, arms crossed on the touchline, looking a little bit helpless mood and, yeah, it's 2 or 3 nil. Mm. When you look at Liverpool, how symbolic would it be that they equal City's record of 18 consecutive wins at Old Trafford? Well, not, not as symbolic as, as they've been Manchester City to, to, to get it, but yeah, it would be it would be fantastic for their supporters, and it, it just it is just a club going in the right direction, as Dan says. It's it's there's so much right about them, and that you know they're getting their up the green in some of the games this year as well, which which is just unfair on the rest of the division, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, they're you know they're, they're uh, you know getting that last the last minute penalty. Um, was that against Leicester? Yeah. And it's, well, God, it's, face of it, quite a soft award, but it's just going with them. Um, and I know they, they, they were, they had an eight-point lead at one point last season as well, didn't they? And, and, and lost it to City. But this is a team that is ruthlessly taking advantage of the fact that Manchester City have lost their best defender. We wonder whether the Amir Laporte absence would be an issue for City. And the way that Liverpool have just steamrolled it on and got result after result after result, 
gives that eight-point lead, actually, that's quite significant psychologically now, I think. Um, they are a, a club that is motoring towards that first title. Mm. Yeah, after this break, they've got seven games in 20 days, Liverpool. By any standards, that's an unbalanced season, isn't it? You know, can it or will it or should it change? Should we have a look at the, 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 the fixture list and the, and the structure of the season to prevent this sort of thing? I think the only probable wiggle room is is League Cup, which is actually, for as far as Liverpool concerned, it, it might be seven games in 20 days, but Klopp will see it as six because he will play a complete reserve team and it doesn't matter who they face in the League Cup. Um, even if they get through this round, he will continue to pick reserve side. So I think he probably see it as six games. But yeah, they've got a battle on in, in the Champions League, having lost away in, in Naples. So, But we said this last season about Manchester City. There is an, ele- you know, an element with Liverpool where... Playing regularly helps. They're in such a, a cycle on a such psychological high. They feel so good going into games. They feel like they want to win games early and you know overpower teams. That actually sometimes playing football rather than training could be a good thing. Well, in terms of like an, um, an emotional momentum. Absolutely, yeah. While they are in a mood of, of winning 17, 18, potentially 19 league games in a row, they want to play the game tomorrow. They want to play every team because every team's got this busy schedule now. That's the, the realities of the calendar. So. The more games they play, I think the more... It might, maybe it harms them in later season, but the way they're going, they're going to have a 10, 12-point lead by then. I think they'll be happy to play games. I think Klopp will be happy to play games because they're in such a, a mood of kind of invincibility at the moment, way above Manchester City. Mm. The Club World Championship in December is going to... I mean, this is a sort of logjam with that in mind as well, isn't it? Which And that, that may mm. have an impact on them. But we shouldn't forget they have actually got a very good squad, and we, we, you know, we've been watching the England internationals. Joe Gomez isn't being, hasn't been getting on the pitch, and Joe Gomez is waiting to to get back into that Liverpool team uh, centre half. They've got great options in midfield. We haven't seen much of Naby Keita yet, have we? So, mm. I mean, got, he should be coming back after the break. Shouldn't and they've he? got, they've, you know, he second season at the club. He'll, he'll be wanting to push on and and demonstrate the quality he had at Red Bull um, Leipzig. It's they've got they've got options up front. I mean, Divock Origi is now. Most other Premier League teams, he would walk into the side, and 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 he, he's a he's a wonderful player for Liverpool to have almost in reserve. We haven't seen anything of Ryan Brewster really yet either. And they've got options, so they will look at it as yeah, we we can compete in all these games. Um, albeit, you're right, the fixture list is cluttered. Mm. Don mentioned the the international connotations of of Liverpool's excellence. Um, just want to focus a bit on on Jordan Henderson. Mm. He's almost derided sometimes at England level or in, a, in the context of an England game, yet he's absolutely adored at Anfield. Mm. Why is there that disparity? I think partly it's because there is now a, um, a move towards this kind of youth revolution with England and, and Henderson is now the oldest player in that team at 29. We haven't, England have not given a competitive minute to a 30-year-old or above since, since the World Cup. So he is the senior man. And I think with, with youth comes a, an element of, of patience and goodwill that if something goes wrong, they are excused. And the book generally stops with the senior players, and, and that's Jordan Henderson. Uh, I think he, you know, in England, in the defeat at Czech Republic, I think, I think Henderson gets a little bit um, unlucky in that if you look at Liverpool's midfield, he has a Van Alden to do the box-to-box stuff with him, whereas Mason Mount stayed pretty high up the pitch. And... And Rice and Henderson were kind of caught on the counter by, by the Czechs. And I don't think that's his fault. 
But yeah, the reality is, is that as Liverpool captain, he has a deep connection with supporters that probably won't ever exist at England level until or if England win a tournament. And uh, and you can see when you, you see the reaction to players like Henderson, you can see why they, they prefer playing for their clubs because it must be a, a wholly different experience for him. Mm. And under Klopp, he, he's brilliant at actually harnessing that emotional power, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. I think he's. I think he learnt from Stephen Gerrard and playing in the same team as him and saw what the Liverpool captaincy means to to the supporter base. Um, and he's, 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 he's his own inspiration in his own particular way uh, at Liverpool. And, and you know, he also lifted a European Cup. So, I mean, that, that, that helps. He's, he's, not he, a bad picture to have on the wall. No, absolutely. No, that's enough from the lad from Sunderland. I mean, it's, it's, uh, he's, he's, done, he's done very, very well. I, I, I actually thought that in the second half against the Czech Republic, he, he played a bit better. He, he, was, he was more... I mean, I thought that was actually a problem more with the system that England were playing by asking Mason Mount to sort of play as a 10. And he, he hasn't really been playing as a 10 for Chelsea this season. Mm. He's sort of been out left or even in the midfield three on the left. Um, so I think the management really got that, the structure of that performance wrong combined with the, um, the errors that they, cannot, they can't eradicate at the back at the moment. But um, Anderson, I think he's still got a role. There is a need for some experience in that England team. We, we can't just play, um, you know, basically an under-21s team or near enough. We have to have an element of, uh, down that spine, uh, some experience. And Kane up front provides it. Henderson in midfield does provide it as well. Mm. If you look at the defence, um, you've got a, an issue with um, Joe Gomez not being able really... He's fallen behind um, mm. um, in the pecking order at Liverpool. You've got... Um, John Stones, who seems to have lost Pep Guardiola's faith. Are we seeing the sort of object lesson in players who come in, put their toe in the water of Premier League football and then recoil because actually the water's pretty cold? Yeah, I think to an extent. I mean, uh, Southgate still rates John Stones very highly. He said, you know, even back in June, he said he was his best defender that he was missing. Now, it's easy to say that when he's absent because it's a handy excuse, but I think, I'm pretty sure he does believe it. To my mind, the, the waste with the defence is, is the way that Southgate's used the fullbacks. You know, Kieran Trippier and Danny Rose have been good servants for, for Tottenham or were good servants for Tottenham and have been for England. But to leave Trent Alexander Arnold, you know, the attacking right back, the top chance creator this season for Liverpool, the European champions, seems a really odd move because Southgate, everything we've seen with Southgate is that he's this forward thinking, I'll make the most of young players in form manager. And to ignore that, leaves me a little bit cold. I don't know if it's the pressure of being told he has to get a Mount or a James Madison into the midfield and therefore he's worried about having too many attacking players, but I can't see how, how not picking those really, really strong attacking fullbacks doesn't make England stronger. And, and it's bizarre because it might even make the defence better. Yeah. You know, if they don't feel like they're inviting teams onto them, we're making mistakes because the defenders are under pressure. If they release that, release that pressure by pinning teams back, you know, it might help because... You know, all the all the mistakes at the moment. Southgate will be ha actually probably be reasonably relieved that they are mistakes, individual mistakes he believes rather than systematic. But at some point we're going to have to start cutting them out because better teams in the Czech Republic will punish us. Yeah, is we mentioned that Gomez might be struggling to displace Matip at Liverpool, but is he more than capable of being an add-on if we take Michael Keane out of the equation at England level? 
Oh, look, Joe Gomez should be playing for England. Joe Gomez should be playing. He should be their first choice um, centre-half alongside a Maguire at the moment or a Stones if he's fit. I, he's he's a, a player of huge, huge potential and actually very, very good quality at the moment. I suspect that he's only fallen... Well, he has only fallen down the pecking order at Liverpool because of injury, which untimely injury, which, which, which kept him out a long time in his development. Um, and now Joel Matip has done a very good job, although you know, Lovren's been playing as well in, in some matches. It's a balance. Joe, I mean, Joe Gomez will play a lot of games for Liverpool this season. We, we just talked about the, the schedule. He will play loads of matches for them, uh, mostly alongside Virgil van Dijk as well. And come the Euros, which England will qualify for, um, and will be a threat in. Joe Gomez will be first choice centre half for England, um, alongside probably a Maguire or, or a Stones. I just think he's got everything everything to his game. He may have suffered a bit because he's a bit versatile. Mm. And that Trent Alexander, the criticism of Alexander Arnold has been his defending. So in the in the tougher games, it's, there was a period where Joe Gomez was playing right back because he offered more defensive surety to, to Liverpool. Um, but come the end, of the, I mean, it's just unthinkable that it won't be Chilwell, it won't be Trent Alexander-Arnold, and it won't be Gomez in the middle come the summer because that England team is just crying out for that quality. Mm. Are Everton's problems at the back impacting on England? We've talked about Michael Keane being exposed. Uh, what about Jordan Pickford? Pickford always feels like a slight anomaly in that the confidence he has in his own ability is such that it's quite quite <laughs> similar. shy boy, is No, he it? isn't. It's actually it's quite similar when you talk to Dean Henderson, the under-21 goalkeeper, mm-hmm. in that it, it's almost as if a mistake is an opportunity for them to go, you know, I'm glad, I'm almost glad I've made that because it means I can show you you're, you're all wrong criticising me. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> didn't work that well for Joe Hart, No, did it? no, it didn't. And there's a, there is a, there's a, there's also a slight feeling as Kepper at Chelsea that it's not that he makes huge mistakes necessarily although the one in the Merseyside derby last year was was bad it's that shots seem to go in and they not that they're, they're mistakes or that they're saveable there's just no necessarily outstanding saves where you think I didn't think you were going to save that and you did yeah. look we're being hypercritical probably yeah. and he is still clearly England's number one but there is now some competition for that role which there wasn't in the past with, with Joe Hart's regression and and yeah, playing. If, if Michael Keane goes out, then the, there's one less reason to keep that those two together because you know they they do have that club level relationship, which at the moment is not a compliment at Everton. Mm. A lot of the a lot of the mistakes and the goals England are conceding at the moment have, are down to individual errors yeah. as well. But they're not really all. I mean, not Jordan Pickford particularly. The, I mean, I know he kicked the ball uh, that gave the ball away for the second Gachet goal, but you know that was a combination of errors from from Rose from from both centre-halves, actually, they're selling each other short with daft passes across, across their goal. I mean, it's... And it, that, that's something that we saw in the, in the summer as well, in the, in the Nations League. It's, if they could just... I know Southgate is desperate for them to play out of the back, but how many, how many times are we watching Premier League games now and mm-hmm. thinking, just kick it long, just get rid of it, just, just, just now and again? Especially with Kane as, as the centre-forward, yeah. because he wins so many headers. Mm. That it's, not a, it's not a giveaway option anymore. Mm. Everton have got West Ham in the, the lunchtime kickoff on Saturday. Is that a key game for Marco Silva? Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Um, look, he, he still has the backing of Everton and they really, really want him to work out, not least because um, they went so hard on his appointment that it reflects very badly on them if it, if it does go spectacularly south. 
Um, but yes, they need a they need a lift, and they certainly need a lift against a team in West Ham who are probably at the start of the season. If they said if we finish below West Ham, it's been a bad season. If we finish above West Ham, it's probably been a good season. It's probably about right for Everton at the moment, and um, West Ham have their issues, but they're considerable distance ahead of Everton, particularly in the final third this season. Which, considering the money Everton have spent on on attacking players, is He's slightly worrying for Silva. He just looks now on the touchline a little bit out of options. He looks a bit fed up with things. And they have been a bit unlucky. Like against Sheffield United, they dominated and lost 2-0. Mm. But, yeah, when you run out of options, the players soon get that, that vibe from you. Yeah. Is, he, is he, in that sense, V.S. Boas Mark II? <laughs> V.S. Boas arrived at Chelsea with a, with a reputation as an amazing coach, an innovative coach. And you could definitely level that at Marco Silva, everybody goes on about what a wonderful coach he is, but his, his, his tenure at Everton is following pretty much the same pattern as his tenure at every club he's been at in this country. He started, started quite well, built up the expectation, and suddenly it's all sort of unravelled. And that appears to be what's happening now. And it, it, look, it's, he's had slightly longer at Everton than he's managed at his previous clubs in, in, in England, but I do wonder whether the, the traits are indicative of of his, his style, his approach, and, and what happens under his stewardship. Mm. You mentioned West Ham. If you look at, it was quite an easy appointment to deride in many ways when Pellegrini went in, very safe, quite grey, 66 years old, not looking at the future there, are you? But he's done a heck of a job, I think. Yeah, he has. I think the last, the last remaining thing to tick off to make West Ham a, a genuine top six contender this season is they do still feel like a bit of a roll-the-dice team and, you know, they'll win two games in a row and then suddenly they'll lose a game out of nowhere that you're not expecting them to lose. Um, there's still issues, I think, with, with defensive concentration and with if they're playing a Rice and Noble as a two and then all those attackers, Mark Noble really likes to push on and get involved up there yeah. and they can be pretty open to a counter-attack themselves. But they are at least moving in the right direction and they've, they've collected a a heck of a band of attacking players who seem to really like playing with each other and have, have found that understanding pretty quickly. Mm. What about Declan Rice? You know, when we hear about him in these, these times, it's Declan Rice, comma, wanted by Manchester United, comma, he's going to go for 70 million or whatever number you want to talk about. He didn't look like a 70 million pound player playing for England, did he? That, no, he didn't. And he, but he's young. Um, he, he didn't, I went to the West Ham Palace game, he didn't look like a 70 million pound player in that match either. But, but, on his day, he's he's got all the attributes to to become a, a, a mobile defensive midfielder, somebody who, who's going to think with a forward pass. Um, uh, he's 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 tidy. He's he's got a big, strong physical presence um, out on the pitch. Um, so yeah, he's got the he's got the armory there to to forge himself an excellent career. And I think you know, look, Chelsea's academy don't get very much wrong, but I think they regret losing him or letting him go. Um, all those years back, because uh, he's, you know, he he will make a very very good career for himself. Um, but to be honest, I hope he stays at, at West Ham. And, and and I mean, I know he signed the contract now, but you, you want him to stick about and and sort of forge that reputation at West Ham properly, rather than going up to to United and being exposed to all the, pro the issues that that club will mm. surely attract. Because there are elements of, of of the fashion statement about an England squad, you know. You are at a fashionable club, so Definitely. you know Nick Pope, for instance, has come in, uh, has been the number two, um, probably worth a go. Uh, you know, I I look at James 
Tarkovsky, and I can't work out what he's actually done wrong. Mm. Are Burnley players penalised for being Burnley players? Yeah, probably. Although I think Gareth Southgate would reason that there is room for all uh, managerial strategies and his is very different from Sean Dyche's and he, he maybe has a concern about uh, if he wants to stick to this passing out from the back. Tarkovsky is by no means the worst at doing that, but it's also not really Burnley's style. Mm. And I think players like Tarkovsky also suffer from being kind of almost footballing middle age now in that if England are going to bring through players now it's going to be that under 21 crop it doesn't it feels very difficult to get in as a 25 26 year old now mm. unless you produce a you know a, re, a, a almost a full season of of excellent form you know it has taken players coming to that squad a long time to get in um, unless you are in a problem position and by that I mean you know Callum Wilson got in because there wasn't much backup at striker and and midfielders have got in like Fabian Delft because there aren't that many other options. But yeah, it, it's very tough to get into that squad now unless you are coming from that, you know, that England pathway, that DNA through St George's Park. I, I think that's a very common criticism, um, widely held criticism as well, of this, this structure under at England level. Maybe it must be the Southgate, but I mean, you can Burnley fas- not fashionable, not getting in. And I agree with Daniel in terms of, you know, the, the style of play they might be playing at club level might might differ. Markedly from what Gareth Southgate wants to do, but it's another example. Wambasaka had a brilliant season last year, didn't get a sniff of the senior England setup, moves to Manchester United immediately in the England squad. And that, that to me, just shows that they're looking at certain clubs. Mm. And if you look at Burnley, you, know, you, can, you can have a debate about the way they, they do things. You know, I think it's very pragmatic, and yeah. you know, I think Sean Dyche is criminally underrated. But they're playing at the weekend. Um, another team have done very well um, so far this season in Leicester. That's going to be a study in contrast as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, two two clubs who've had excellent excellent starts to the to the new season. Um, Burnley are uh, doing what they always do, punching above their weight. But you know, remember this time last year they were really really struggling down the the, the wrong end of the table. You know, and the weight of all that Europa League qualification campaign, which hadn't actually yielded a place in the group stage. But they they were really creaking under the strain at that at that point, and yet they picked up in that second half of the season. Yeah, I think if you look at Burnley's record, I bet they're right up there in terms of points accrued over 2019, the calendar year. Be, I mean, there are a few clubs that are doing that very very well. But there's a lot going right there. They bought well in the summer. Um, they bought players that will fit into their system as you'd expect them to do, and they've done it on a budget as well. So a lot to admire. And with Leicester City, just. I just think that the, the crop of young players they've got at that club, you can listen, they're just phenomenal. I did, I did a piece with James Madison a few weeks ago and he was just listing through the midfielders and, and Damari Gray is one of their oldest players at 23 in that midfield. You've got you know, Tielemans, he's been magnificent since he came into the English, English football. Um, indeed, he's only 21, 22 and he's probably, he's arguably one of the best defensive midfielders in the league. Mm. Uh, it's, there's so much going right at Leicester City. How did you find James Madison? You know, we've had that incident, okay, you know, left the England squad because of illness. Uh, he's got a touch, he's, he's got a, a, an insight now into the exposed nature of being in England International. You know, Never fo- played for England, but yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, pho- <laughs> yeah. photographing the casino yeah. and all, all the attendant, you know, manufactured outrage about that. Um, what was he like as a guy? Because you know he has this reputation of being one very self-confident, but two not slowing coming forward. 
He was a brilliant talker. Journalistically, it was fantastic to talk to him because he, he was very honest and, and open. Yeah, self-confident, but um, he was at pains to to insist that he's, he would never be arrogant. I think he mentioned his his mum would give him a clip around the ear if he was he ever came across as arrogant, whether that be on the pitch or in an interview. Um, I, I was actually really impressed with him. I was a bit nervous going into it because I'd, I'd done round tables with James with the England setup, and he that self confidence had manifested itself in quite a sort of prickly way. Um, he was he was you know jousting with the journalists, and he's thinking, well, you know, come on, you haven't even been capped yet, and you're you're mm. you're almost giving it about back a bit too soon. But he was great company. He was really really good company one on one. I thought he was. He came across really, really well. He was honest, interesting. And he's obviously obsessed with football to a, you know, to the level you have to be to be at that elite, elite level. I think um, interesting in how he saw the game, um, how he used to watch Paul Gascoigne play, and how he sort of models his his game, whether it be in, as a number ten or an eight or even a six. I just thought fascinating bloke. Um, yeah, disappointing to see the the photographs and the timing of that, given that. He was ill and, and out of that England squad, but you know that decision was made a few days earlier when he was probably ill. Mm. Um, and people grow up in you know, oh, footballers grow up in public anyway, yeah, don't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In that sense, the development of Leicester—are we almost approaching that sort of perfect storm situation where other clubs are faltering? There is a, a degree of momentum around, built around a young team, mm. and you've got Brendan Rodgers a coach who needs to prove himself at the very highest level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it doesn't make you a, a non-football romantic to point out that when Leicester won the league, it was at least partly because other clubs in the top six were in between slight and complete disarray. And the same is probably true of this season as well. Uh, I'm not saying that Leicester are going to mount a title challenge and I don't even think they'll finish in the top four, but the fact we're even having that conversation is, is a huge compliment. I think the only the only doubt about the team is is the lack of backup to Jamie Vardy because mm. you know Iosi Perez has come in and looked uh, he looks like he's working from outside out wide almost like Shinji Okazaki did um, but there doesn't seem to be a, a you know a hugely potent goal threat there and they are reliant on on Vardy's goals but he seems to have the ability to keep himself fit through all weathers and and while he is fit there's no reason why they can't finish in the top six because. As Dom says, the, the variety of young players and the ability of, of Kaglas Yunku to come in and effectively replace Harry Maguire and even you know, speak to Leicester supporters and you know, he's in better form than Harry Maguire was at this time last year means that everything's going right. I think, they, I think now successful teams generally have an excellent pair of fullbacks and I think Leicester's are the second best in the league now. With Chilwell and Pereira, I think they are only behind Liverpool in that regard. Mm. We used to look at Tottenham and and envy them their choice of fullbacks. It's a bit of a supermarket suite now at right back, isn't it? It's a mess, and then it's it's pretty shameful that it's sort of degenerated into that. Um, you go back a few years when they were, it was Walker and Trippier, and, and they had options there, and then Walker obviously goes. Serge Aurier, you could, have, I mean, any anyone who watched French football could say that Serge Aurier wasn't going to be the long-term answer mm. at Tottenham Hotspur at right back. Um, but for them to have allowed that to happen seems a, a waste, to be honest. Um, and they took a risk by letting Kieran Trippier leave in the summer and, and it's backfired. Um, he's actually playing very well for Atletico Madrid and Spurs are trying to convert midfielders or centre-halves to play right-back. And, and the imbalance of that team is there for all to see and for opponents to exploit. Mm. One for it, 
obviously played against Germany in the 2-2 draw for Argentina, had 77 minutes in the 6-1 win over Ecuador on Sunday. Mm. Um, do you expect him to play right back against Watford? I think he might have to, because uh, initially Sergio Rio was the option and, and, and it hasn't gone well. The, Pochettino is clearly not convinced by Kyle Walker-Peters. The Davinson Sanchez experiment was a disaster. Mm-hmm. Sissoko then you know, presented himself as an opportunity. And I actually think, given his skill set, probably could work OK there. But it, it didn't look good against Brighton. It, the problem is, is it will take him time to learn on the job. And, and Tottenham don't really have that time at the moment. So you know, I think he probably has to be the option. I don't think he's a great option there. I think he's probably the worst option of, of any of the top six clubs at right back. But yeah, he's kind of left with no choice. And yet still has issues to solve at centre-back as well, where clearly one fourth is, is more of a natural. So Yeah, yeah. and you've got you know, an, an issue at goalkeeper now. You know, Paolo Gazzaniga mm-hmm. comes from Pochettino's hometown in, in, uh, in Argentina. Been around for a couple of years. Has he got it in him to be an adequate replacement for Lloris? It's a, it's a big ask to, to replace a World Cup winning captain um, in, that, in that position. Um, that said, Lloris, his form had, well, was pretty low anyway. He, was, he had deteriorated markedly. I know we, we, we sort of focus on the, the horrific injury he sustained against Brighton early on, but that was a pretty dreadful mistake as well in the, you know, in the, in the build-up to it, which presented Brighton with their first goal. Gazaniga, the jury's out. Well, he's, he's done OK when he's played. He's, he's, he's looked all right. He's, he's got the. He's probably got the, the skill set, but he's not been tested at an elite club for a prolonged period of time, and that's what he's going to have to do. He have to rise to that challenge now and show that that, that Lloris won't be missed. But you know, you're talking about, as I say, France is number one. Um, so it's a it's a big ask to take Phil's boots. Mm. You mentioned uh, Dan that you still don't think that Leicester will make the top four. Mm. I've got a suspicion they might, but um, that notwithstanding that. If Arsenal don't make the top four, do we wave goodbye to Unai Emery? I think probably yes. Uh, and I certainly think that uh, the majority of Arsenal supporters hearing the mood at the moment would say yes. Purely because of the, the decline in other teams and that this now presents itself as a, a glorious opportunity to get themselves back in there. A far better opportunity even than last season when they had it in their hands and threw it away. Uh, Emery, they're a funny one, Arsenal, because it's the same as last season. They started actually pretty well, but the performances seem to outweigh the results in the mind of supporters, and they are being consistently bailed out by by Pierre Emerick or Bamiyang. And the only plus point for for Emery is is his use of of young players without the mandate that Solskjaer and, and Lampard have. Mm-hmm. He has actually, you know, arguably done more than those two with the young players given the level that the, the likes of Joe Willock and Bakaya Saka were expected to be at this yeah. stage. So that's a plus point, but that's, you know, that's not enough if it means missing out on the top four. How good... Uh, Saka, we're talking about an 18-year-old, mm. three games under his belt. How good can he be? You know, you've already got Gareth Southgate talking him up. Yeah, yeah, they can be as good as they want to be as long as there's, there's patience at the club for their development. And that's, that will be the key at Arsenal because it's one thing breaking into the side, but look at Manchester United and Marcus Rashford, you know, a year ago even, we were saying he was the next answer for England and a, a truly world-class attacker. And now you'll find Manchester United fans who would rather he was nowhere near the first team. So 
the environment at the club plays a huge difference in, in the role of these players. I, I'm, I'm more impressed by Joe Willock. I'm bowled over by Joe Willock. Mm. He looks, if England are looking for another you know, central midfielder, then he can't be far away either because he ticks quite a lot of the boxes as well. Mm. And he's come through the system as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, if you look at Emery, will, and if we get, you know, we're prematurely right in his obit here, but was Ozil a failure? Of his man management? No, I don't think so. I don't think you can level that one at him. But I think it'd be unfair. Um, Mesut Ozil has <sighs> been um, I, I, just underwhelming, really, in recent times um, with Arsenal. He's, he, he's. We all know. We always go back to that performance against Leicester City. Was it last season on a Monday night where he absolutely ran the show and was untouchable? But how many times have we seen that for Arsenal? Um, they they have got they've assembled at that, at that club some uh, you know arguably the second third best attacking um, group of players in the division. Um, probably only behind City and Liverpool, isn't it? it, it that that front three potentially explosive, but it doesn't include Meza Özil. There's no place for him in that team. The flashes. I think the last goal he scored was was in a defeat back in April at home and he scored a brilliant goal that day and you just think, there you go, go and do it. But they lost the game, he, he sort of drifted in and out and that sort of sums him up. We know what he's capable of, we know what he's achieved in his career, but it's now come to the point where surely January is a chance for a natural divorce. And even if that means that Arsenal have to fund his wage somewhere else, I think... Which it just, will. Which it will, because he's on. that was another mistake made in that window. We mentioned Sanchez earlier. I'll, I'll, I'll admit I wasn't, I wasn't alone, but a lot of people got suckered into thinking Arsenal and United did some brilliant business in that window, but they didn't. They didn't. It was a disaster. I, mm. The other thing you get sense with Ozil is kind of falling out of love with the game, which for a creative player matters when you're kind of working on instinct. Mm. I, I wonder how much the national team thing, kind of yeah. being ostracised at, at national team level, has led kind of given him a bit of a, an identity crisis that Arsenal have indirectly been hampered by because it, you, you watch him, even in training and stuff, you know, he, he just looks like he's not really enjoying himself and that's kind of the beginning of the end, really, when you're the age he is. Well, the happiness he's off the pitch as well, which, yeah. which are unpleasant yeah. as well and you feel for him on that. But I just think, again, it just contributes to now's the time, just, just go your separate ways. Mm. Do we need to sort of read between the lines in the international breaks, you know, I saw a piece this morning with um, Lionel Scaloni, the Argentina, man uh, Argentina manager, talking about, uh, you know, his suspicion that Sergio Aguero has basically been playing injured. Mm. Um, what does that say about City? And, you know, we talk about what's going to happen in January. Do you expect City to make a big splash in the transfer market? Not really, no. I don't. Um... Look, they might, they might, depending on how Amerit Laporte's recovery from injury going is going, and and how where John Stones is at, uh, and how Nicolas Otamendi plays over the next two or three months, they may well buy, spend big on a centre half. But I think that was always part of Pep Guardiola's intended plan last summer, and I think he's a little bit pig sick that it didn't happen because it might well cost. He will feel it might well cost his side the title. Uh, but I don't think other than that they'll do anything. If if Aguero has been playing injured, that would make some sense because he's looked. Now, I was at the Wolves' defeat and he looked really poor there, completely off the ball. Not the only one, um, but Aguero's one of those players that almost becomes a bellwether player for an attack in that if he is on it and he's really fancying it, 
the players around him are kind of lifted by that. Uh, and the opposite is true. When he looks disinterested, as he did then, and leggy, then... And yeah, and we know he has hamstring problems, so it wouldn't be a you know, it wouldn't be a huge surprise. Mm. City are at the Coliseum on Saturday. <laughs> um, that should make Aguero look good. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be up against probably Gary Cahill. Yeah, Cahill for England. Anyone? <laughs> I have to say that I think Arsenal probably bought the wrong the wrong centre half from from Chelsea in the summer. Um, he's Gary Cahill has been superb since he came into that Palace defence. Um, I know he's worked with Roy Hodgson before, so he knows exactly what the drill is going to be. He's a natural leader, he's a talker. Um, from the first second of a game, he's screaming at his defenders. and um, He's made and helped Martin Kelly, a player that had been forgotten, to establish himself as a first-choice centre-half. And bearing in mind that James Tompkins, Mamadou Sacco and Scott Dan are also at the club at the moment, that's not bad going. I mean, the, 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 you know, Tompkins and, and Sacco were the first choice defenders in a good Palace team for the second half of last season. And um, Cahill, just playing as if he's uh, like the player that's got all the pedigree that you'd expect of him. He's not, look, England is clearly that's not, not going to happen. Um, and he's, he's retired pretty much anyway from, from that scene. But, but it just shows the value that bringing somebody in, even though they haven't been playing very much at an elite club uh, for the last few years, they can make a a really positive impression on a, on a, on a sort of middle-of-the-road the team. Mm. Chelsea, it's fair to say, have made a very positive impression with mm. you know, the way they've handled a tris- transitional period, however enforced it's been. Um, do you expect them to put Newcastle's win over Manchester United in, into perspective? Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're, they're clear favourites to do that. Um, it will be interesting to see how, given that you know, Mount and Abraham and Tamori have all been on... England duty. Uh, it will be interesting to see if if any sort of fatigue starts to hit home at Chelsea, because there are not as many backup options for for those positions. There, there clearly are a few doubts about Christensen, and Tamori is now complete first choice at Chelsea. Particularly if Lampard's going to use his three-man defence, he's obviously going to play. Uh, so that will be interesting. But. Um, it's just the mood at Chelsea because they've got six fewer points than at the same stage last season. You know, they were joint top of the league at the same stage last season. So it is all about the mood. But I think the club is realising that, that that mood is important, particularly now, particularly with the transfer ban, particularly with demanding some patience or pleading for patience with Lampard. So, yeah, the longer he can continue this kind of buoyant mood while results are, are not as good as last season, the better, really. Mm. Just want to end with a, almost like a, a look at what we're going to have in a, more than just over a week's time, the return of the Champions League. I saw uh, Andrea uh, Agnelli, the Juventus chairman, talking about, well, the reason we need a European Super League is because we need to fight the threat of video games like Fortnite. <laughs> Who's he trying to kid? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't, that's not a... Considering all these clubs are doing esports and, and uh, endorsing uh, people to play FIFA all the time. I'm not quite sure. It's funny how that. the solution to the problem also fits perfectly <laughs> within his personal preference. I, look, it's... I, I, I mean, those rumours are never going to go away, but I think there's enough resistance out there to hopefully to, to keep them as a, these, an aspiration for these clubs that will never be realised. Yeah, I agree. It's transparent, self-serving nonsense. Ain't broke, don't bother fixing. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.